Welcome to Construction Cashflow. I'm your host, Stu Davidson, and if you haven't already done so, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. It's so far off course. So the last 15 years for me in sustainability have been a disaster in the way that we are now branding leadership for projects which are doing tiny amounts compared to what we need to do. We have now crossed climate tipping points. There's absolutely nothing we can do uh, to avoid really, really serious climate shocks. Those shocks now are going to make coronavirus look like a tiny inconvenience. We have five years to get everything in place or we're cooked. There is no sign at all that we are reducing carbon emissions globally. In private conversations with some of the leading scientists, they're saying things like, we're not expecting the majority of humanity to make it through the next 30 years. So we've got to change our culture. We've got to start recognising that we've got to behave decently wherever we are in the chain, and we've got to stand up for that decency. And we've got to be honest. The way the industry is pushing sustainability, there's no very little authenticity in it. So start being honest about what you want to achieve. So I think it starts with every individual being honest with themselves. Not think that we've got 10 years, not think that we've got five years. We are living on borrowed time now. We could be months away from our first truly global climate shock. In this show, we ask our guests to tell us their story, tell us a little bit about their background, how they got to where they are today, how they develop their product, their services, their ideas. And we discuss how that can affect construction cash flow and other areas of construction and also to give us an idea of how we might make things better and give you a few tips and ideas to take away with you and listen to the end where you'll find out more about them, more about our guests, about what motivates them, what inspires them and hopefully that'll inspire you too. And always, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another episode. In this episode, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Puran Desire, OBE. Puran is an environmentalist and has been working in sustainability for over three decades. In 1994, he co-founded one of the world's first sustainability organizations, Bioregional. He is now the founder of OnePlanet.com. Puran is also the founder of BedSed, which was London's first zero carbon mixed development. And this development has won numerous awards, uh, particularly with the RIBA, Housing Design Award for Sustainability, and was a World Habitat Awards finalist as the foremost example of sustainable energy in building and housing. 
So it's without further ado that it's my pleasure to introduce you to Puran Desire OBE. Hi Puran, it's really lovely to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you Stuart. Just been uh, enjoying the sun in Brighton. Yes, it's been beautiful, hasn't it? It feels like springs in the air. So, tell us, Paran, how you got to where you are now and some of the successes and challenges you faced along the way. Yeah, Stuart, that's an interesting question because actually I look back and it's been a very interesting <laughs> journey. <laughs> I would never imagined it at all. Uh, 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 it'll be very challenging at times, but loads of fun as well at other times. So, um, yeah, I was born in London, but when I was two weeks old, uh, we moved to Africa, to Malawi in Central Africa, grew up there. Uh, um, had a great time there. We had a big garden with uh, lots of um, dogs and uh, wildlife, um, snakes and birds and lizards and things like that. So uh, I think I ended up with a real love of wildlife uh, from there. Was We were there for three years, moved to India for um, two years, but then I came back. Uh, we came back to the UK. And, and so I did all my schooling in the UK, uh, brought up in Kingston-upon-Thames in, in South London. Um, uh, did well at school, uh, ended up uh, going to Oxford University to study physiological sciences and medicine, did a degree that ended up in neuroscience research, then went to Cambridge to do medical uh, studies, um, uh, but only did a year and a half, uh, dropped out of that. So I'm an Oxford graduate and a Cambridge dropout um, <laughs> and and got back in the environment. So spent a year in India studying meditation. Um, looking at the world differently, uh, yeah, realize, realized as well, you know, you're realizing just how serious the environmental was, problem was. So this is in the 19, um, uh, you know, 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, came back to the UK, co-founded an organization, environmental organization called Bioregional, Bioregional, and um, set up some uh, enterprises, a couple of uh, sustainable forestry companies, a couple of uh, organic farming businesses, a couple of recycling uh, enterprises. We were growing as an organization, needed new offices. And to cut a long story short, ended up putting together a project to build the world's first zero carbon urban village of 100 homes and 2,000 square meters of commercial and community space. Lived there for 18 years, had our offices there. Uh, 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 led on creating or coined the term One Planet Living, how can we lead happy, healthy lives and the resources of our one planet as a way of really summarizing the challenge uh, and the opportunity and led a process uh, to identify 10 very simple sustainability principles, intuitive sustainability principles, really holistic, but very easy for people to understand, and the 10 One Planet Living principles, and then led a, um, a uh, initiative to apply those principles across all sectors. So it wasn't just for a particular sector. We worked with uh, retailers like B&Q, manufacturing companies. Um, uh, we worked with real estate developers, uh, cities. And, and really, the idea was bringing everything together to see how, how we could create 
places, communities which help people lead happy, healthy lives within the limits, environmental limits of our one planet. I um, also worked um, to set up another company in joint venture with Cress Nicholson uh, PLC with financial backing from Quintain Estates and Development. Um, so collaborated to set that company up and we built out another 250 units of development, including in Brighton, the one Brighton development of 172 apartments, completely private, uh, completely free of private car parking. So no, no car parking except for disabled and visitor, a few number of disabled parking to passive house standards. This was back in the early 2000s, completed in, uh, in fact, we completed the whole project in, in uh, 2010. Uh, um, uh, rooftop allotments, uh, low temperature fired terracotta clay blocks, so reducing the carbon emissions from that, wood fiber insulation, uh, a community owned energy services company uh, supplying 100% renewable energy. And back then we were, uh, we almost used the marketing um, line of declare your independence from Russia, which we should have done. <laughs> so we all knew, I mean, yeah. this is where in the early 19. Yeah. Sorry, in the early, sorry, in the early 2000s. Did I say in the early nine, mm. 1990s? In the early 2000s, uh, we were working on that project. Uh, yeah, and we were thinking about this uh, even then, about declaring our independence from Russia. Uh, um, so, yeah, and uh, very pleased that we used it on the London 2012 Olympics. So that was called the One Planet Games. And some of your listeners may have heard of the UN Sustainable Development Goals but I'm very pleased to say they're directly derived from the framework I created. Uh, um, I can't take credit for this, but my colleagues held the first workshop at the United Nations to, with the Colombian government to propose what became the UN's Sustainable Development Goals using One Planet Living as the inspiration. So, so that's that. And then after I, um, back in about uh, 2019, I decided to step away from that, instead look at creating a digital platform to embody the sorts of thinking which enabled to us to get those projects um, off the ground. That's amazing. It's an amazing story, Paran, and you're a real pioneer. Some of the things that you were doing, and I, I know the buildings that you've discussed, the one at Mitcham, which is the Z-Bed one, and you can't yeah. miss the... You the can't miss the... Bed Z. Bed Z. It, it, it was a joke at the bed time. Bed Z. Bed Z. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I always say that around it, the wrong way. No, but I know. It, it, yeah. it was tongue-in-cheek. That's why you called it, it Bed Z, because everyone <laughs> who exactly, are our age will Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but an amazing pioneer building uh, you can't miss it when you when when you go go down the road and it looks amazing and and that's all the way back then and and then the the, the development in brighton with the allotments and the um you know all, all following these one planet principles and it's taken so long uh you know th there's these buildings which i think are pioneering and leading the way to the future um it seems to take the rest of the industry a long time to pick up on it um, i am seeing now there does seem to be a desire to start to build more sustainably but not just in sustainable materials um you know building sustainable communities but it's still slow there is a desire to do it there's a nervousness about the cost of using sustainable materials etc but really is it a real cost or is it just really the way that we manage the process? And what do you think we need to do to, to really get 
people on board. I know building regs are changing, uh, but they are uh, really looking at, uh, sometimes I think they're restrictive building regs they take a long time to change and and sometimes the change changes we need uh, go go beyond that particularly where space requirements are concerned um what do you think the next steps really is for the construction industry to to really grasp the concept of uh, sustainable building sustainable communities interesting question stuart um it's been very slow. The industry has been incredibly slow. Uh, the commercial side offices have moved faster than residential uh, because uh, so you see some great uh, office buildings built to high sustainability standards. A lot of it is greenwash, but but nonetheless, there are some good ones. Um, but that's because uh, when they're renting out those properties, actually, a lot of companies are now asking uh, before they rent out a property, part of their corporate social responsibility is to be in a green building so so there that has moved residential has been much much slower house builders are awful all of them all the big house builders are awful <laughs> yeah, they, they do as little as possible um and i think the other thing which has happened is there's a whole industry grown up in sustainability of sustainability consultants who are sometimes good but basically they get paid by the incumbents to sign off uh, uh, more or less business as usual as leadership in sustainability. So uh, it's so far off course. So the last 15 years for me in sustainability have been a disaster in the way that we are now branding leadership uh, for projects which are doing tiny amounts compared to what we need to do. And you just need to go to any Barrett's development or any uh, Persimmon development to see, you know, they're often, uh, they often top the league in terms of uh, being uh, seen as getting the green leadership awards but you only have to go to one of their sites to see really what what it's about and that's after 20 30 40 years of um this and they've moved a tiny tiny amount now who knows they might move very quickly over the next few years so what does the industry need to do it needs to think very carefully about what is the challenge ahead of us because we have missed the opportunity to avoid catastrophic climate changes. And those catastrophic climate change, I mean, they're happening now around the world with, um, you know, we saw two years ago, five degrees ever hotter than ever recorded in, um, in Canada. Then last year we saw the uh, flood, um, the drought across Europe, across uh, the States, the highest temperature ever recorded in the UK, um, the drought in China as well. And the, until then, the worst ever recorded heat wave was the Chinese heat wave last summer. Um, and in fact, we did see a drop in crop yields. And so although a lot of the cost of living crisis with food has been caused by the Ukrainian, um, the war in Ukraine, it is underpinned by climate change as well, uh, reducing crop yields. And then this winter, we got the even worse heat wave in uh, uh, Europe. Uh, so that on New Year's Day, in some parts of Poland, it was 19 degrees centigrade, which is just ridiculous. And then now, as we do this interview, there are fires in Chile and the highest ever recorded temperatures in Chile. So 
we have now crossed climate tipping points. There's absolutely nothing we can do uh, to avoid really, really serious um, climate shocks. And those shocks now are going to make coronavirus look like a tiny inconvenience. And how quickly are they going to hit? Uh, we did an event in uh, for the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow in COP26. So that was 18 months ago or so. And we had Professor Sir David King, the UK's former chief scientific officer. And he was saying then, we have five years to get everything in place or we're cooked. Those are his, his exact words. And um, perhaps we can share a link to that video where we've, where we've got him saying that. Um, and in fact, since then, carbon emissions have increased. So there is no sign at all that we are reducing carbon emissions globally. So there is, so in private conversations with some of the leading scientists, they're saying things like, we're not expecting the majority of humanity to make it through the next 30 years. Well, that's a stark, it's a very stark warning and a, a dark picture. And I think it needs to be said, you know, the evidence is there, the research is there and it's happening around us. You know, even uh, we're seeing in the UK, even where I live, you know, the temperatures, the, the amount of rain we've had, the sustained rain is, is kind of out of the ordinary. So there's kind of hints to even those of us that probably are not in the expert circles that really don't always understand the figures, but we're seeing, you know, there's evidence for us already. Um, and I think that's the thing, you know, there's a, there's a huge movement. And I think till people really start to consider their own uh, way of life and what we consume as individuals, I think we kind of look to others and we kind of, I think we're still in that phase where we don't really believe that's happening you know and and what you're bringing is a real wake-up call you know and and that's why i i'm so pleased to have you on the on the show because i think this voice needs to you know the warning the start warnings need to be said for people to wake up and 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 to really start to think about what can we do collectively as communities absolutely right Stuart. and you asked me what can the construction industry do i think the construction industry or at least individuals in the construction industry need to take the time to think very carefully about the situation, not think about that we've got 10 years before, you know, or decades before things are going to get bad, not think that we've got 10 years, not think that we've got five years. We are living on borrowed time now. We could be months away from our first truly global climate shock because we are now entering what's known as an El Nino period, so uh, which is uh, part of the Pacific um, Oscillation, um, uh, maritime oscillation. But it means that actually over the last um, three, four years, temperatures have been unusually low globally. And so we are going to get a spike in global temperature either this summer or next summer. That's uh, very likely. And that will take us potentially above even the um, Met office are saying, the meteorological office here are saying, we might cross the 1.5 degree centigrade threshold for catastrophic changes as early as 2024. Okay. Wow. 
So we have to now start preparing. It's too late to think about uh, changing business as usual. We have to think now about, okay, how are we going to respond to these to these global society destabilizing shocks um, uh, uh, coming at us in single numbers of years if we're lucky, months if we're unlucky. And you're absolutely right. The way, the only way I can see through this is to start building resilient regenerative communities um, and regions. Uh, so we have to think about, okay, how, where is energy going to come from our communities? We're going to see a, a reduction, a shortening of supply chain, so much more local energy. Where is our food going to come from? It's going to have to come much more locally. There are huge opportunities in there. We're, of course, we're wasting so much food. So, um, uh, there are huge opportunities for saving that. There's so much opportunity for taking our food waste, our green waste, um, and composting it and putting it back and rebuilding soils in a way that absorbs a lot of carbon dioxide. And we have to do this wherever we are in the world because the the way it will hit the UK are, is really in three ways. One is, of course, extreme weather events, but we won't get hit as hard as other countries in the near future. Uh, uh, we will get things like uh, flooding, more flooding. Um, we will get things like heat waves. And last year, I think the figures are something like there were 5,000 excess deaths uh, because of the heat wave. Um, uh, so, so we are seeing people being killed by heat waves now. Um, so extreme weather events are an issue for the UK. But the two biggest threats are indirect. One is global food shortages uh, um, and what's known as a multi-bread basket food failure is increasingly likely so we've got five main grain producing areas of the world if one is hit bad we can tolerate it if two get hit we are in a, uh, a position where we will see massive increases in food prices and possibly even to the point where we're, there's not enough food to go around uh, to feed people. Now, at the moment, we have people who are um, overnourished, <laughs> to say the least, you know, the epidemic we have of obesity, diabetes, and we've got a lot of people undernourished. So it's a question of distribution of that food. Uh, but we could very soon be in a world where even if we wanted to, we couldn't feed uh, people. Direct weather events, food. But then the third thing is mass migration. The UN is predicting at least 700 million people being displaced by 2030. And the geopolitical instability that that will cause, uh, we can hardly imagine. So, and that's by 2030. So we, we're going to have to start preparing. I say now we all got to become preppers, but not by arming ourselves and going off as individuals. The most resilient uh, we can be will be as communities where we are supporting each other and finding a way through what i think is going to be the most difficult 20 years that 20 30 years that humanity has ever faced wow that's that's a really stark warning and it's an important warning for us all to think about and i think it it, it means that we really have to shift the paradigm of how we do community um you know outside of work and inside of work and if i put it into the construction context as i understand how we 
operate as a sector we're very siloed and i think in a way that goes for a very you know for, for quite a lot of industries we're very siloed in the way that we communicate and very parochial very very kind of self-serving uh, with the construction industry, for example, we're a very kind of uh, vertical hierarchy with the supply chain. And, you know, not always the wealth, uh, uh, the construction industry is not necessarily, a, is not being a good wealth creator as such for everybody down the line. It's a breeding ground for insolvencies. When I look at it in cash flow terms, the faster cash flows, the more wealth grows for everybody down the line for the small businessman and his family so that affects community and I think there's certain parallels between the wider community in the way that we see visualize interconnectedness between us and you know that kind of looking after number one type of approach you know as long as our bit's okay we're okay you know and we'll pass the risk down the line um, with what you've just said don't see that we can really take that um, approach anymore. We've we've got to be able to uh, work in a, work in a way that we can visualise the the consequences of our of our actions. Whether it will be like you know from a construction cash flow point of view, what is the overall effect of me paying late or reducing a payment? How does that affect down the line? And I think that most all individual people up the line they can't necessarily see that so um for the wider eco uh, environmental community and for the, maybe the construction community or it could uh, account to any sector really that you know we're all very largely um particularly in the west era uh you know a uh, industrialized community so we work and we spend a lot of our time at work and and the jobs we do in the sector we do um how can we, from a construction perspective and a wide environmental perspective, how can we start to change that paradigm so that we can visualize the uh, the consequences and the interconnectedness of our actions, do you think? Thanks for that, Stuart. I mean, it's a, a perfect feed line, isn't it, <laughs> uh, for the digital technology platform that um, uh, I've been building with colleagues. Uh, we we have been building a platform which enables people to understand and the interconnectedness of things. So you can start seeing how different um, uh, plans can be connected, strategies can be con connected around what we call shared outcomes. And, and to do this, it was a really interesting process. It's um, uh, We ended up, we wanted to join everything up because that's what we realized we were doing when we were getting these great, great projects off the ground all, all, all around the world. All we were doing was helping people join the dots, join the dots between health and climate and ecology and jobs and happiness. Um, uh, all Everything is interconnected. We live on a very small world, a small planet. We're now realizing you know how interconnected everything is yet we don't have the tools or the culture really to see those connections to visualize those connections start thinking about managing those connections and possibly in due course even measuring those connections um so we we ended up creating a way where we could take any strategy policy plan project break it down into its what we call its building blocks or its atomic structure of outcomes, what you want to achieve, 
actions, how you're going to achieve them, indicators what you might track, see how those fit together um, to make sure your strategy plan policy project is internally consistent. But then we're able, because we can take any of those policy strategies, plans or projects, convert them into this common structure, we're able to connect any and as many of them together as we want. So then you can start seeing, okay, um, how how does all of this join up? And we talk about people collaborating in ecosystems across the traditional silos of departments, of organizations, of sectors, collaborating in ecosystems around shared outcomes. What is it that we all share uh, as a common outcome? How does that, uh, as common outcomes of, of health, of uh, uh, you know, reducing climate damage, uh, improving soils, improving nutrition of food, uh, creating jobs, uh, meaningful jobs. How does all that fit together? And so how can we collaborate as an ecosystem on these shared outcomes and shared indicators? Uh, that's the platform we have been creating. And yeah, we've, uh, we've, we've got uh, customers starting to use it across all sectors. Well, that, that sounds amazing, Brandon. It's not something I've seen before, and it would certainly be very, very useful at the you know onset of um, design development for how we how we create our built environment. You know that would be amazing, and also to visualise down the line the interconnectedness of things as we construct our buildings. One of the uh, biggest causes of delay is to work out. What, cause and, what the cause and effect was of a delay. And we quite often see, and the biggest biggest blockage to cash flow in construction that I see is delay and disruption. But quite often, the, it's not until something ends up in a dispute that, that the lawyers and the, the experts are looking back several months, six months, three years, back into the project to find out what the cause of delay uh, was in retrospect but being able to have a look at the connectedness of things beforehand at the planning stage um, in construction and the wider obviously it's much more important to start with the wider environmental issues so from your your model you know everything else it seems that everything else fits into it so what we're doing as construction we're not doing it any longer in isolation as it kind of happens at the moment we'll oh we've seen the site we'll make a profit we can we can rent it out we can sell it we can flip it we can do all of these things but we don't know where it's fitting into the wider ecological uh, system of things particularly as you you say we could be facing climate shocks you know, ge geopolitical instability the, the movement of millions and millions of people uh, you know it's 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 like almost burying our head in the sand to continue to um, develop buildings and built environment in isolation absolutely right and frankly we're not going to be able to bury our heads in the sand very much longer they're going to be ripped out of the sand pretty quickly uh, for any of those who, who who still want to you know still want to keep their heads in the sand um so um yeah i think we're in for some incredibly challenging times i think the other thing is to create a culture of collaboration. The construction industry, and in fact, our society has become very, very um, litigious. It's become very contract-based, not based on trust. And uh, uh, you know uh, that just doesn't work. And there's no way that you can write that into a contract. 
interesting interesting points that we you know when you mentioned we become too contract based um i think maybe it can change you know contracts tend to get written by lawyers for lawyers and they have fun in the gray areas of i always say they have fun in the gray areas and 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 that's where we 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 get our stress and struggle in the gray areas of contract but i quite like your idea of contracted on trust do you think there's a way we can we can measure and evaluate trust and value as opposed to contract conditions and terms um so i think we have to approach this differently uh there is some ability of course to measure this but you know as soon as you measure something you can fiddle the books you can cook the books you know that that's the trouble with measurements um uh, there, uh, but I think what is really interesting about this interconnectedness uh, idea. So we use different databases from conventional databases. So most databases are known as uh, SQL type databases. They hold all the data in rows and columns. Um, but in fact, reality is is not rows and columns. <laughs> uh, it's much more interconnected than that. So these other databases, I like to call network databases. Technically, they're called graph databases, hold data on basis of its interconnectedness. Now, the interesting thing is, for example, the police use it to identify criminals because you can track all the bank accounts they've got, who they hang out with, uh, uh, and then all of a sudden you start seeing a pattern of connections which makes someone suspicious. So I think one of the interesting things is the use of that sort of technology within the construction industry from everyone to individuals to companies uh, to, and just see where who are who is associated with the most trouble in contracts um, <laughs> and then starting to see them as the bad guys. You know, they might be profiting in the short term, but the transparency we we would get from that would be would be great i mean all the way you know and i think it's got to be right through at every level in the industry mm. just to understand you know of course it can be anonymized to some extent but um uh but yeah because you get good work people you get good managers you get um bad managers bad workmen you get bad ceos and you get good ceos you know um so being able to see where they uh, uh, um, you know uh, uh, where they their footprint has been. Uh, I think we we would we might be able to uh, create uh, identifying and understand trust that way. <coughs> but in the shorter term, I think it's just we got to change our culture. We got to start recognizing that we got to behave decently wherever we are in the chain. And we've got to stand up for that decency. And we've got to be honest. We can't. The way the industry is pushing sustainability, there's no very little authenticity in it. So start being honest about what you want to achieve. So I think it starts with every individual being honest with themselves. It's interesting that it does come down to an individual basis because we all go out and shop. We all go out and buy stuff. We all go and buy the resources that, you know, the, the earth has given us. And uh, it's a very consumerist, you know, post-industrious, industrialized culture. Um, why do we do that? I mean, I don't think we ever used to feel that we needed to shop all the time. Um, but we do now. And it's really changing our own 
personal habits, isn't it? To and and I think you know when we spend money, it means we've got to work harder to earn the money to 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 spend it. And at the end of the day, that affects our 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 own life energy as people. You know, we become slaves to the to consumerism, really, without even even knowing it. So. You, you know, I was yeah. going to agree with you there that, yeah, it comes down. How would you see it coming down to, uh, you know, the individual? Yeah, I uh, um, I think we, you know, individuals do. We will have to ask ourselves very, very um, deep questions in order to uh, to create a, a, a different world because we have created a culture which is, uh, which is a consumer-based culture. It's a very individualistic culture. Um, uh, um, uh, and and consumerism doesn't bring happiness. It's not what the planet is. The rest of the planet has given us. It's what we've stolen from it, raped the rest of the planet to get it. And literally, the planet is half as alive as it used to be. So we have consumed the rest of nature to to create the consumer goods. Uh, it hasn't been a gift from nature. Uh, and indigenous peoples are very good on this. Uh, when they take something, they all uh, most of them. I'm, I'm not saying every um, all the indigenous peoples are like that, but but generally in their cultures, it was you had to give back. Uh, and we have got absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing in our culture, which tells us that for what we take out from the rest of nature, we should give back nothing. That's how far off track we are. And if anyone thinks that they can carry on taking and not giving back, uh, is living in cloud cuckoo land. So people who say, you know, might think, I, I, I mean, they usually don't say it to my face, but they might say behind thing, you know, Purin, you're being unrealistic. No, I am, you are living in an unreality. You know, you are living in cloud cuckoo land if you think we can continue that way. So, you know, wake up. And uh, if you think you can live with that on, without, all the things that the rest of nature provides us from the air we breathe to clean water to the food we eat uh, you know if you think you can live without that you you are crazy and in fact lots of psychiatrists neuroscientists are now starting to describe the culture we have created as pathological we are out of touch with reality. We believe our spreadsheets. Uh, we don't believe the evidence of our eyes uh, and have no sensitivity to uh, how to work with the rest of nature of which we are part. Yeah, ab absolutely agree. Great, great message there, Brian. I'm sure we can go into a part two on this. This is a really, really deep subject and it's a wonderful message. I think it's an important message that you that you've brought. You brought what, and there's lots of lots of advice, lots of um, uh, awakening calls, really, in there. Um, what one message to individuals listening would you would you give them in terms of maybe what they can do? So for me, it's taking the time just to quietly think about things, reflect. Because it's not necessarily about doing more. It's often about doing less. I often say, actually, I call for more climate inaction. You know, let's not 
have more climate action. Let's have more climate inaction. Because actually sitting around, having a cup of tea, not rushing around in cars or flying in planes all over the place, consuming lots, that's the best way of saving carbon. <laughs> so we could very easily relax into um, a more regenerative, sustainable, regenerative lifestyle. If we got off the, you know, the uh, uh, got off the hamster wheel um, that we're on, which you know, um, which is going faster and faster and faster, and of course, more and more people are just getting spun off it. Um, so, so I, I think it's take the time to reflect, be quiet, think about things, just think, why am I rushing around like a, a madman or a mad woman? Um, are we really living in a completely mad society? Uh, if so, what are the things I can start changing in my own life? And I think it first starts with a change in attitude. Even if you don't change anything in your life, start changing your attitude and be open to all the positive things that you can do, your company can do, your society can do, um, uh, 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 to become part of um, a regenerative future, a future where actually we turn from consumer of the rest of nature from a consumer society to a regenerate society we have to regenerate the living systems on which we depend because sustainability is not enough now we've gone way too far for that we as i said we have destroyed half of all living matter on the planet if we weighed the amount of living matter on the planet it's half as much as it was 300 years ago so we have to regenerate that and if we do things differently we can actually do that per and desire thank you so much amazing message thanks Stuart it's been a pleasure chatting to you it's been wonderful Paran just before you go have you got time for a quick fire round yes I have yep okay then yeah so very quickly then because I know that everyone would love to know what inspires you and motivates you um so how do you start your day I have gone for cold a cold shower when when are you you're not the first one uh, but but that's amazing uh, when when are you most productive i would say probably well actually i used to say mornings but but now it's actually any time of day when i'm just being quiet what's something new happening in your life right now um I'm going to start sprouting seeds, beans and seeds, you know. What does adventure look like to you? It's exploring ideas. What thing would you love to do that might surprise your friends and family? Sit down and do nothing more often. Name a challenge you overcome that changed your life. Running a marathon. Who or what inspires and motivates you? I have uh, two things. One is I've become fascinated by Taoism. Really, really fantastic stuff. But I, I'm most inspired by actually indigenous people, particularly the San Koi, the, the, uh, the Bushmen of, um, uh, um, of South Africa. I just think they are the most beautiful people on the planet. What does success mean to you? I think it's just being not not you know nothing just just being everyone everyone is successful actually what advice would you give your young self none because i would never have listened to any advice 
<laughs> well on that thank you so much Buran. it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for the message i'd like to invite you back again sometime brilliant thanks a lot stuart thanks Buran. you've been listening to construction cash flow hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so so you never miss an episode and remember the faster cash flows the faster wealth grows <laughs>